The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. I'm going to pray in a minute after I read. I want you to pray for me uh, that, that God will give me the strength to preach this psalm again in the way it ought to be preached. So the third psalm, let's stand together. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. O God, you are a shield. You are the glory and the lifter of our head. You awoke us this morning and you have brought us to this place. So we pray, arise, O Lord. Save, O my God. Salvation belongs to you. Bless those who have gathered. Bless your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Here's the main idea of this text and this sermon. The Lord's salvation gives courage and strength every day in every situation. This is a Psalm of David. There are many Psalms attributed to David, but this is the first of 13 Psalms that have as its title that it relates to an episode, a very particular moment in David's life. It is the first Psalm of lament. It is the first psalm that contains the word selah, which means to pause, to reflect, and or to rejoice. Psalm 3 is a morning psalm. Psalm 4 is an evening psalm that we'll look at next week. David is central in both. David's centrality points to the fact that as the king, the Lord's anointed fares, so will God's people fare. It's at a very particular moment in his life, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we're moving from Psalm one and two, the two foundational Psalms that prepare us for the rest of the Psalter. We move from these two lofty Psalms to the gritty reality of life. Now here's what the Bible is acknowledging. It's acknowledging hardship and real danger. So we see from the beginning of the Psalms that great difficulty can come into the life of God's people, even the king. 
And we see that when this trouble comes, it triggers prayer. So this Psalm and others like it instruct us as believers how we pray and respond when times of crisis come. This is how we gain courage. This is where confidence comes from. As we move through the Psalm, we'll see David look out over the multitude of his enemies with eyes focused on the Lord who gives him rest because he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. There are four major stanzas. We'll work through each one. The first is an acknowledgement of unbelieving adversaries. In verse one, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The repetition focuses on the key word in this stanza, many. This is a united front that's composed of three groups of people. His enemies, the growing opposition, those that are moving toward joining his enemies, and the skeptic who looks at David and says, there's no salvation for him in God. This is a historic moment, an event that actually happened. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel. Go back to your left in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And let me put this in context so you understand what's happening. You may or may not be familiar with the account and the story of David's life. David is king. One of his sons is Absalom. Absalom. At the beginning of chapter 15, we are told that Absalom sets himself up outside the city gate and he is looking for people who are coming into the city who need counsel, who need help, who are looking for some form of judgment on an issue that they have. And he says in verse four, Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, he was wise, sharp, shrewd. And he used some conniving ways to draw people away to him. He goes all the way to the point to win over David's counselor, Ahithophel, who joins him. And it says at the end of verse 12 that the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So we come to verse 13. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So he's anticipating Absalom's about to attack him. Go quickly, let us over, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So he prepares to leave. Zadok, who is the priest, prepares the altar and brings it out to go before David. Now, why would he do that? He's anticipating what happened with Moses. The altar of the Lord went before the people. That's how they kept God's protection. So they think that they assume that as David's gonna leave, the ark's gotta go with him. But David has brought the ark up to the place that God would have it, to the holy hill. And David 
refuses. He tells them in verse 25 to return it. Take the ark back into the city. And if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. And this is a sad moment. So as David leaves, uh, trying to think of a place to illustrate this for you. I don't know. It's really not much further. We're on top of a hill here. You go down at Shield Museum, down the bottom, and you start back up a hill. That's kind of like coming out of the city of Jerusalem. And then the Mount of Olives is a lot taller, but you ascend up to the Mount of Olives. You cross a creek uh, down at the bottom. Of the, so he goes down out of the gate of the city, crosses, and he starts up the Mount of Olives. And it says, weeping as he went. Devastated. Just think about this. Man is the, the king of Israel and his own son has risen up against him and he's had to flee for his life. Now he's, he's making his way into the wilderness to find protection. They come past a place called Barim and there came out, I'm in verse five of chapter 16. They came out a man from the house of Saul whose name was Shemai the son of Gera, and he came and he cursed David continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of the King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. So I don't know if you saw the picture of uh, the guy from North Korea and his working his way through Korea and all of his uh, secret service guys running at full speed beside this. It's quite impressive. So you got David with his people beside him as they're making their way. And Shemai said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Get out of here. You're, we no longer want you as king. Now here's Shemai's conclusion. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul and whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See your evil is on you. For you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, I love this next verse. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, who should this dead dog, why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go over there and take off his head. But the king said, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. Why? Why would God send Shema? If you go back into chapter 12, when Nathan the prophet comes and points out the sin of David and what he has committed with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, God tells him that judgment's coming. And what David's doing is he's receiving Shemai as a result of his sin. But David sees something bigger here. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for the cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shemai went along on the hillside opposite him, cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. So I have a question for you right here. 
Could you go to sleep when nightfall came? That's why there's a Selah here. You need to stop and hear what's being said. The conclusion of many in Israel is God's abandoned David. There's no salvation for him. Join Absalom. But the psalm turns and it turns abruptly. It turns to confidence in the Lord's protection. Verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. You see, right thinking about God, that's a right theology, a right understanding and knowledge of God with firm believing. So there are people who know a lot of the right things about God, but they don't believe it. When you know the right things and you believe, it leads to a bold affirmation of humble courage and God-centered confidence. So here's what David's saying. My kingdom may be being ripped from me, but the Lord is the glory and the lifter of my head. Here's what he's saying, that God is sufficient. You may take my king, but you cannot take my God. He is He is sufficient for me. He is the defender. He is the shield about me. And you think of shield, something to to block whatever weapon somebody's throwing at you. It's only a partial shield. the, the, The text here is saying that the Lord is a shield about me, around me. It's covering my whole body, not a part of it like an ordinary shield. It is a protection that surrounds entirely. It is above, beneath, around, without, within. It is a shield to ward off the blow. Now, how does David know this? Because he knows the promise to his father Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse one, when God comes to Abram, he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Proverbs 30 verse five says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Do you see the flow now? Go back to the last verse of Psalm two. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm three is an illustration of those who take refuge in God. Because he, he is a shield about us That leads to prayer. I cried aloud, verse four. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. It is knowledge of who God is and what God has done that results in David trusting him. Spurgeon said, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. Even though David has fleed from the holy hill, he knows that God hears him because he knows Psalm 2, 6 is true. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It doesn't belong to Absalom and it doesn't belong to David for that matter. It belongs to God. And that is the one whom David runs to. Now the evidence of God's supply comes in the next verse as we see David rest in the Lord's sustaining power. I lay down and slept 
I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around me. So here's the image. Here's the image. It's nightfall. And as the sun goes down and night comes, David knows just outside of how far he could see, not very far from him are thousands of soldiers who want to take his life. The word many thousands means more than you can count. Thousands and thousands. And with that image, the Bible says David lay down and slept. And I have to ask the question, how? This is deeply convicting to me. I, I, I want to be very personal with you for a moment. I have no idea how many sleepless nights I've spent in my life. Started in my childhood. I've battled it this week. Something gets on my mind and I lay with my eyes wide open. The only way to sleep for people like me is either two ways. You trust in the means of man or you trust in the God who saves. Proverbs 3, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. Do you get that? Here, read that verse one more time. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. The Bible's acknowledging it's coming. When it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So lying down to sleep expressed David's confidence in who God is. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? So David's, while he's looking, he looks over a hill. He's not looking to say, there's another army that's gonna come sweeping over that hill and help. No, here's what David's saying. My help comes from the Lord, verse two, who made heaven and earth. So here's who's gonna help me, get this. Here's who's coming to help me. The one who spoke and the world was. That's the one who's coming to my aid. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God's not going to sleep. Do you know how God reminds you every day you're not God? You gotta go to sleep. And here's why this boy lays awake, because he thinks somehow he can do what only God can do. And those sleepless nights always, always, they may pile on top of each other. They always end in repentance. I've never fixed my problems. Laying awake has not extended my life. It's only shortened it. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, 
eating the bread of anxious toil. I love this. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127. God gives to his beloved sleep. So it's confidence in God that God is the great king who will come to the aid of his children. David knew that his glorious king and father would take care of him. And with this thought, he consoles himself and he goes to sleep. One of the old Puritans, Thomas Watson wrote, quote, a good conscience can sleep in the mouth of a cannon. Many thousands, the vast number, by all appearances, all is lost. Here's what David's saying. It is very possible that they're gonna sweep into this camp as soon as it gets dark enough, we can't see them pursuing up here to us and sweep in and kill me. But God is not measured by human standards. And because of that, David is not afraid. Martin Luther, for those of you who have no idea who that is, other than Lutherans came from him. Martin Luther was one of the key figures in the Protestant Reformation. The world had lived in darkness for many, many years, decades, centuries. And Luther, who was a Catholic monk, through the reading of the Bible, was awakened to salvation through Christ alone by faith alone. And he began to preach that the word of God must be proclaimed and that the word of God must get into the hands of the people. The Catholic church, which also ruled the world, rose up against Luther and a council was held at Worms or the Diet of Worms as it was called or Worms as you would see it. Luther was not actually there in the city where this was to take place. He had to travel there. As Luther was making his way there, his best friend sent a messenger. And the message was simple. Do not enter Worms. This message had come from his best friend from the chaplain in the city, from, from, from a confidant that he trusted. But Luther, undismayed, looked at the messenger and said, quote, go tell your master that even if there be as many devils and worms as tiles upon the housetops, I will enter it. Brothers and sisters, the history of Christianity turned at what happened at Worms. Luther, days before he died, was being interviewed as people were trying to write down the story of this man. As Luther was recounting this moment, here's what he said. The moment he uttered, if there be as many devils as tiles, he said, I was then undaunted. I feared nothing.
So I say to a world of Christians who first ask this question, is it safe? The answer is no, it's not. This illusion of safety that we live in is an illusion. Our only hope, our only trust is in the Lord's salvation. And that's where David's trust was. He said, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you shall strike all my enemies on the cheek. You shall break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord and blessing be on your people. Selah. The last section of this psalm is a confident cry for deliverance. Confident because David knows that God has heard him, that God will provide for the needed deliverance. He is confident that the Lord God will be victorious. You see, faith is not a bragger. It's not a confidence in man's strength or man's imagination. It is a humble dependence on God that continues in prayer as long as the danger remains. We trust in a God who will act. Now don't misread verse seven, that, that David's praying vengeance down on Absalom and the soldiers. That's not what he's doing. David, if he was going to enact vengeance, if, if David was vengeful, he'd have said to Abishai, lop his head off. But David was trusting in God. And here's what David knew. That if God rose up, he'd strike his enemies on the jaw and break their teeth. So this is an image of a wild animal like a lion who's rendered useless if his jaw is broken. In fact, he'll wander off and die. Stephen Charnock writing about this text wrote in such a way that you and I don't often think he said when God takes vengeance upon the ungodly he will smite in such a way and manner as to make them feel his almightiness with every stroke That's the God of Psalm 2. So here's what happened. David and his mighty men drew Absalom and his soldiers out into the forest. If you know the end of the story, Absalom's hair gets caught. Somehow that becomes the focus of the story and somehow we miss 2 Samuel 18, 8, which says this, the forest devoured more than the sword. You know what that means? God arose and broke some jaws. God responded and did what only God can do. And the reason that night that David drifted off to sleep is because David knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. So what is the significance to us, this historical 
situation? Is it that David had confidence in the time of need or is there something deeper here? This, this pushes us forward that, that the Lord is going to redeem his anointed one. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to bless his people and he's going to do this through Jesus Christ. God will extend deliverance and victory and blessing to all who believe on his name. So Hebrews 12, 2 says, we look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Christ fulfilled what Isaiah prophesied. I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Brothers and sisters, this points us forward to a day that is coming. Revelation 7 describes when, when the redeemed from every tongue and tribe and nation and land are gonna surround themselves at the throne at the feet of Jesus. You know what you're gonna cry? If you're one of those people, you know what you're going to cry? Salvation belongs to our God. And who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One of the old Puritans wrote this simple logical sentence. Track with me. If he will save, none can destroy. If he will save, none can destroy. If he will destroy, none can save. Why? He is the Lord. So I ask you this question. Does to ask yourself, does my life give evidence that I believe that the Lord's salvation gives courage and strength every day in every situation? Now there's another side to this Psalm. There's Absalom and everybody who was against David. And if you were to ask this question, does your life give evidence that you believe the Lord's salvation gives courage and strength every day in every situation? Their answer is no. Here's what they believe, that you can manipulate and connive and construe a way in life that you can get what you want. Hear me, God will not be mocked. He is the Lord. So brothers and sisters, what does this mean in our lives? What does this mean in the 21st century? What does this mean today? I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. I'm just trying to be faithful to what I'm watching happening. But unless your head is in the sand, no longer it's in your sand, unless your head is continually in your phone and you're only watching and listening to what you wanna watch and listen to and you're not paying attention to what's going on in the world, you better. And this world's not gonna be changed by politicians and kingdoms. This world is doing what it has done before and it is rapidly moving toward hostility toward the people of God. And it's happening in this culture and it's happening daily. It's happening slowly, steadily, and subtly, but it's happening every day. When bakers are told you can't bake cakes for who you want to. When decisions are being made about what you can and cannot say in the public square. 
ever tightening, ever tightening down is the seek to remove everything religious from our culture. And I've heard some of you, it'll never happen, blah, blah, blah. Well, what if it does? I'm not saying it's going to. I'm asking you a question. What if it does? What are you going to do? Do you understand this? That Christianity emerged in the most unlikely place in the most unlikely time in history. There's never been a more hostile government toward religion than Rome. So, the little band of disciples were preaching the gospel and they were brought in and they were summoned by the religious leaders of Israel to stop, stop it. I pick up Acts 4.23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and why did the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What is that? Where'd that come from? That's Psalm 2. The understanding of Psalm 2 is what's driving these people. Here's what they understand. Jesus came to this city. Romans and, and, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, turned against him, killed him. But salvation's from the Lord, so God rose him up from the grave three days later. Now, because of this, here's what their decision is. And we prayed, verse 31, and the place for which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse eight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. One of my friends was interviewing Chinese un underground believers about 15 years ago. He was brought into this location in a clandestine manner. He taught them and they had a time of question and answer. Here was their first question. And this is how it went. Look at my face. Tell us how the church in America is suffering. Tell us. To which he said, we're not really. And here was their question. All they had was Bible and Holy Spirit. Here's their question. Why? Why? Here's what follows obedience to Jesus in every culture, in every place in the world. Here's what it looks like. You ready? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Paul ends Romans 8 with this question. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or cancer? Wayward children? What's going to separate you from the love of the Lord? For it is written, for your sake we have been killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that is true, if God has saved you in this great manner of salvation, then why are we trembling by lesser physical dangers of this life? Why are we so imposed and frightful of the unknown? Why don't we look like David? Brothers and sisters, I say this with love and grace and to myself, the sleepless pastor. Difficulty should drive you to God, not from him. His strength is perfected in weakness. His fullness comes to emptiness. His joy replaces sorrow. His life replaces death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. How'd you get alive? According to the text, you may know. God made you alive. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's the greatest difficulty going on in this room right now. And I pray that you will confess, if this is true of you, that you will confess this sin. The greatest difficulty going on in this room right now is that salvation is somewhere else. That you think salvation's somewhere else, in someone else, and in something else. Look to Christ, my friend. To you who have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, stop looking for salvation in little G-O-D gods, in little humans, in things, and look to the one who has given his life for you. And for those who claim to be saved, for those who claim the salvation of God, Cast your cares on him. Him. Why? For he cares for you. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, Christian. How do you know God cares for you? He saved you. This is the logic of this text. Salvation belongs to God. And if God can save me from my sin, then God can take care of the rest of my life. So let me just conclude with this simple statement. 
as all of you are looking at me closely. I am so tired of hearing people say, well, the Bible has nothing to do with real life. You hadn't read the Bible. The Bible has everything to do with your real life. Everything. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now for those who are looking for their salvation somewhere else. And I plead and I pray that they would look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, repent of their sin and trust in you. And God, I pray for those who claim to know you as Lord and Savior, who are looking for their temporal salvation from whatever difficulty it is in their life somewhere else. May they cast their cares on you this day. May they run to Christ. Lord, thank you for your promises of your word. That if we ask you for bread, you're not gonna give us a rock. If we ask you for fish, you're not gonna give us a snake. God, you, you give us what we need. So God, give to your people what they need. I pray this prayer in the precious name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.